The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, everybody, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. I don't know what that intro was, but we're rolling with it. I don't know either. This is fine. Smile and nod, boys. Smile and wave. One of those days. Oh, it's definitely one of those days. I actually, it's been a good day because, so this week we are recording on a Thursday again because I went to a baseball game and I actually spent most of my day today thinking it was Wednesday and then I found out it was Thursday and now I'm really excited because that means tomorrow's Friday. Yes, that's usually how days work if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you have some very interesting ideas on how the world works. Yeah, but one thing is for certain, the days of the week work in a specific order. That much I know. You sure? I mean, I have a feeling you don't have a choice in that, because, like, if you just don't show up to work in the middle of the week and say it's Saturday, I have a feeling they're not going to believe you. Uh, yeah, that sucks, but it's true. Anyway, <laughs> we're starting out real great this week, Cracko. <laughs> don't, don't we always start out great? <sighs> it's like we didn't even get on the road to take to get sidetracked. We, we just never made it. Are we ever on the road? We're just on some obscure path and we're not sure which way is, is the right way. <laughs> Sad but true. We're on some unmaintained service road. <laughs> It hasn't been used in since the 1900s. The early 1900s or the late 1900s? Yes. Fair. All right. So, um I'm going to I'm going to try here. I'm going to try. This week is a motel. <laughs> it's not going to just be us talking about random stuff, although it's mostly going to be us talking about random stuff. New door houses and potatoes being grown by New York. And our consequences have actions. But yes, so this week we are going to be going to sunny California. Yay. Is this going to be a wonderful, is this going to be like a wonderful story about like a summer vacation or something? Uh... I'll take that as a yes. Um, I'll tell you, you got one part right. This is a story. Good to know I got the important details right. <laughs> well, um, actually, the reason I wanted to do this case is that it has recently got stirred up in the media again for two reasons. Not just one, but two. Not quite four, so you can still count along, Krakow. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm following for now. So, uh, the first thing is that... Uh, legally, some new information has come to light recently. So there, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about it later. But they are requesting a new tr new hearing. 
not a new trial, but a new hearing uh, to, I guess, talk about like sentencing and stuff like that. Like I said, we'll talk about it at the end. And then the second part, uh, you remember the Netflix series Monster by Ryan Murphy that focused on Jeffrey Dahmer? Yes. Well, the second part of the anthology is going to focus on today's story. Ooh. Ooh. So if you haven't guessed it yet, we're going to be talking about Lyle and Eric Menendez, often just called the Menendez Brothers. I don't know if this story might be... I don't know if you would have heard much about this. Uh, I was a kid when this happened. I, I already don't recognize... I don't remember those two names, or I don't recognize those two names. All right, well... The Menendez brothers committed parasite in 1989, and this term is actually when kids... it. It has a loose meaning of killing a close family member, but most often it refers to a child or children murdering both of their parents. And that is actually what happened in this case. It was a very famous case because it happened in the late 80s, which is when uh, media started grabbing on to crime. So court TV and all those types of things, they started having cameras in the courtroom. They started airing actual full trials so it had a lot of coverage and because of the story itself so the the case really took the media by storm because these were two wealthy young men from a prominent family and a supposedly picture-perfect life but they brutally murdered both of their parents inside the family's Beverly Hills mansion. Yeah, this isn't a fun summer vacation story. You didn't actually think we would have one. I mean, one could hope, but you know. So let's talk about how did we get here? How, how did this horrible event come to be? So it starts with Jose Menendez who was born in Havana, Cuba in 1944 and then moved to the U.S. when he was 16. In college, he met Mary Louise, who went by the nickname Kitty and all the way to her death was referred to as Kitty. So that was that's what we will refer to her as. And after meeting in college, they got married. Uh, Jose was apparently a... Um, ruthless businessman he went up the corporate ladder he uh was very very good at making money and uh he he ended he was in the music industry working for rca as a top executive and then eventually transitioned into the movie scene and hollywood and he became a film executive did he uh, did he make films like the ones in the woods that we talked about on the trail that I've yet to see? <laughs> no, he made actual movies that made millions of dollars. Ah, so there's a chance we've seen some movies that this person has worked on. Correct. Correct. Yay! Yeah. So Kitty was a teacher and a former beauty queen, but she later transitioned her focus to being a mom. Joseph Lyle Menand Menandez? 
Menendez was born in 1968. But for some reason, he always went by his middle name. And this is kind of a weird, like, and I always found it odd. And like my dad, ever since the day he was born, they have called him by his middle name. Yeah, it's a thing. And I don't, (laughs) yeah, I know it's a thing. And I'm just like, I have no problem with it. It's just, if you wanted if you wanted to name him Lyle, why didn't you name him Lyle? Backup name. Why did you name him Joseph? <laughs> it's just a backup name. Backup name. Like, oh, I don't have I don't have a middle name. Let me introduce my alias, my backup name. Well, I know my dad, he is a junior. So I think that's why he went by his so like his dad went by their first name and he went by their middle name. So it wasn't two people with the exact same name being yelled at in the house. Yeah, that would be a little confusing probably. Yeah. So, two years later, Eric was born. And at the time, the family was living in New Jersey. This is while the father still worked for RCA Records. The brothers even attended Princeton Day School, which is a prestigious private school. Uh, It is still around. And I looked up, last year, tuition was listed at over $40,000 a year. Uh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, I went to public school. <laughs> but the, the the school is known for its academic excellence, and it is naturally a feeder school to Princeton University, which is one of the top colleges in the country. So in 1986, Jose's work transitioned into movies and that meant the family moved across the country to California. Lyle went on to attend Princeton University and back in California, Eric excelled at tennis. He even ranked 44th in the U.S. Junior Tennis and entered the 1989 Boys Junior National Tennis Championship. He apparently also had a little bit of a creative streak where he wrote a screenplay with a friend, but it never went farther than that. I have an idea for uh, some some bonus. Your ideas are either hilarious or horrendous. So this is going to be good. So for bonus clips for the podcast, we just send Krakow to Princeton University and just kind of like turn Krakow loose. And just see what happens. Just film the reactions. Moving on. That, yeah, okay, fair enough. Understandable. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, you would probably have the same effect going to a kindergarten and being set loose, so... Well, not really, because I would fit in there. Okay, fair. Fair. Exactly. Juice boxes and coloring outside the lines. You think I wouldn't fit in? Fair. <laughs> So in the middle of August of 1989, I don't have an exact date, but Jose, the father, and Eric had a conversation about college. So this was right after Eric graduated from high school. He uh, was going to go to college not far from where they lived in California. And Eric wanted to live in the dorm, taste a little bit of freedom, but... Jose insisted that Eric needed to live at home, even though freshmen were supposed to live on campus. 
at this point, Eric was so distressed that he entered a deep depression and considered taking his own life. Oh no. Well, it it may seem a little over dramatic. It may seem like a, you know, sulky teenager pouting that he didn't get his own way. But the truth is actually a lot darker as to why he wanted to get out of that house. Throughout their entire childhood, both of the boys were physically and sexually abused by their father. One time in 1976, they confided in their cousin, Diane Vandermolen, who actually talked to their mother, Kitty, but it was just kind of swept under the rug and never talked about again. And I feel like this is the the thing, the, the catalyst for this whole event. Oh, yeah. It's, it's interesting oh, yeah. how you can go through a story of something like this happening and you, you can pick out the moment like that right there. That's what yep. did it. That's what caused yeah. this. Most likely. That played a factor in this. Yeah. Well, and we're not talking about serial killers, so it's not like, you know, we're always like head injury or, you know, this horrible childhood. Yeah. Yeah. But this definitely was, I would say, one of the catalysts. Um, well, it. this is the epicenter. There are a few things around it, but um, yes. So... Not long after Jose and Eric argued, Lyle and Kitty had a separate fight. I don't know what exactly it was about, but Eric walked in on this fight and watched their mother rip a hairpiece off of Lyle's head. Apparently, Lyle's hair loss was considered so embarrassing to the family that it was kept such a secret, his own brother didn't know that he wore a toupee. So it's 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 not funny, but just when you think about it this way, it is a little bit. You hear your brother and your mom arguing in the other room and you walk in and she has just snatched his hair off of his head. <laughs> it's horrible, but you're right. It is a little. From an outside perspective, it's a little funny. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that was apparently a a very embarrassing moment. But afterwards, Eric and Lyle had some time together to just kind of talk. Uh, the brothers were very close through childhood, through, uh, you know, this period of time. And they, they kind of sat down to talk. And this is when Eric confided in Lyle that the abuse never stopped for him. So once Lyle grew up, went to college and everything, he got out. But Eric was still stuck there, and now he was told he was not allowed to leave the house, that he would have to live there and stay there and continually be abused. I'm, I'm sure that that was just awful, hearing that you're going to yeah. be stuck here. Yeah. you got to stay here. So Lyle, being the big brother, being, you know, um, I'm not... An older sibling, but I have, I have been exposed to the younger sibling protection because I have a big brother. Uh, so Lyle told him, "Don't worry, it'll never happen again." I had something sort of similar. Never went to this extent, obviously, where I was picked on by a kid down the street to the point that I would come home crying from school. So my brother said, "Don't worry about it. 
and that kid never picked on me again. Here it turned out that my brother scared the ever living poop out of the kid by threatening him because my brother's five years older than me. So imagine you're like nine or ten and this teenager walks up to your house and <laughs> threatens to beat you up if you don't leave his little sister alone. I mean, if if your brother didn't, I know it's a little late for that now, but yeah. I would have. Well, I mean, we were, this was, you know, we were little kids. We were kids and, you know, it was. Okay, now picture this though. But, but what if now just some random person shows up at this person's door and being like, you were mean to Mo. Now you must pay the consequences. <laughs> yeah, he's like grown up, married, kids, everything. <laughs> and now Krakow shows up. I'm here for your kneecaps. <laughs> what did I do? Well, back in third grade. <laughs> I haven't forgotten what you've done in third grade. I know. But yeah, so, you know, Lyle, Lyle's a big brother. He's a typical big brother. So he went and confronted their father and he said, you, you leave him alone, obviously. But instead of helping, this actually made Jose lash out at Eric, the younger brother. Jose tried to physically attack his son, like not abuse, just like full-blown assault. Uh, but luckily it was unsuccessful. Uh, Eric was able to, you know, quick skirt away and like get to the other side of the room. But their mom was in the room. And this is the day that Eric discovered she had always known about the abuse and just did nothing to stop it. I don't I don't know what's worse, the the abuse or knowing someone knows and just isn't helping. Especially when the apparent reason nothing was done about it was because if it came to light, they would lose the lifestyle that they had. The the riches, the luxury, the rubbing elbows with celebrities and all that stuff. Bruh. So after these the string of confrontations Lyle and Eric were convinced that their parents were going to kill them because now they might tell someone and instead of having anyone find out they could just kill the boys continue living their lifestyle be the the poor parents who lost their children so on August 18th of 1989 Eric and Lyle used a stolen ID, went a town or two over, and they purchased guns for, and I put this in quotes, protection. So they went into the store. They said, you know, we're looking for a gun for self-defense to protect the house, yada, yada. And they originally picked out something smaller, you know, just just have a gun. But the store clerk yeah. recommended the best thing for self-defense would be a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. Hey, then. Yeah, I've seen pictures. It is not a little gun. Oh, no, no. It's it a very not. big gun. Mm-hmm. Makes big boom. Yeah, they each got one. So they had two very big booms. The next day, the family had a fishing trip planned on their boat. 
and they they have a boat, they have a crew, a captain, etc. The crew afterward was interviewed and they mentioned that the entire day something was really off with the family. The two brothers during the trip kept to themselves above deck at one end of the boat and the parents spent the most of the trip down below deck. And apparently the only people who did any fishing were the crew. Ah, uh, yes, to be able to go on a fishing trip and watch the servants fish. Uh, I I watched an interview. Well, I didn't watch the like it was a phone interview, but it was in a show. So like there just had like pictures and stuff going. But um, in an interview, Eric said that when they returned home from this trip, he ran to his room and locked the door behind him because he was so scared for his life. He spent that evening sitting on his bed, absolutely terrified, clutching the gun, convinced that his father was going to break in and kill him. So the next day, uh, they, they had some things that they already had planned to do. And then that evening, the brothers decided they were going to leave. And a huge argument broke out. Jose and Kitty told them they were not allowed to leave. They could not leave the house. They could not move out. They could not do anything. So Lyle ran upstairs and grabbed the guns. The argument apparently was incredibly bad, and this was just mounting for days. And at this point, the brothers walked into the den where their parents were watching a movie and just started firing over and over and over to the point that apparently they shot off all the ammunition that they had on them and went out to the car to get more ammo and reload and came back and continued to shoot them. It's a little much, don't you think? A little bit of overkill, just a tiny bit. Just a little bit. One was well more than enough, I'm sure. But I mean, this whole thing was just kind of like, you could have just left, not said anything. Like, yeah, they they could have just physically walked out of the house and driven away. Yeah, just like grab the essentials, you know, just, just leave. Well, not even that. Like, just, just or, leave. Just, just, wa- just leave. Walk out the door. Just walk out the door. <laughs> They're watching a movie. They're not paying attention. Just leave. Exactly. So descriptions of the crime scene stated that Kitty was so badly disfigured that she was unrecognizable. Apparently, the brothers, after the initial adrenaline rush, decided that they were going to make it look like a mob hit. So they, like, shot out kneecaps and, like, completely obliterated the bodies. That that makes me uh, question, like, were their family actually doing something a little shady? Because if you're trying to make it look like a mob hit and they investigate and find you weren't doing anything wrong, why is there a mob hit? Well, I will say 
their dad did have a reputation. Like I said, he was a ruthless businessman. He had many complaints from yeah. employees and things like that. So I guess it wouldn't have been that surprising. But still, yeah, it's it's weird. Like, where, what, how is that where your brain goes? Oh, let's make it look like a mob hit, guys. Someone has watched too many true crime shows. Oh, wait, are you talking about them? Oh, yeah. Um. Yes. I heard the sigh. I was just like, okay, there's a lot of silence. I know you think it's me. Oh, you think I'm talking about you, but I'm just not going to correct you. We'll just see what happens. So anyway... <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so, after this brutal shooting, the brothers got in the car and drove around aimlessly, trying to create an alibi. They expected that someone had heard the attacks, but no one came, so they they left, and they're like, you know, they tried to go to the movie theater and get tickets to a show and things like that. When they did get home, they expected police, emergency services, you know, the caution crime tape, everything. But instead, it was just an eerily quiet house with two dead bodies in the den. At this point, Lyle called 911. And this call is on YouTube and a variety of documentaries. It's even used in the trailer for the upcoming Ryan Murphy monster. But he is in absolute hysterics. Uh, the dispatcher kept asking, what's the problem? And sobbing, he replied, somebody killed my parents. Somebody killed my parents. And... Based So, obviously, police came out and everything like that. And due to the demeanor of the brothers, apparently one of them uh, collapsed on the front yard and was just sobbing. Uh, they they weren't even suspected. They they weren't they weren't tested for gunshot residue. They nobody looked to see if they had blood on them or anything. They just figured because they were so hysterical they must have come home and found their parents dead. That's, that's horrifying. Yeah. Well, there's always a but. After the murders, that's when their behavior became suspect. The two of them spent over $700,000 in, I believe, less than a month. And today, that's $1.7 million. I, I don't know if I should be concerned about the amount of money they spent or the fact that the that the, that the inflation jumped that much. <laughs> I don't know which is more concerning. They're both pretty concerning. Uh, but they they flew all around the world. They, they even attended a New York Knicks basketball game. And they were photographed courtside in the background of the official trading card for Mark Jack Mark Jackson. I don't know who that is, but I can only imagine how rare that card is. Uh, now that begs the question, is someone selling that and for how much on eBay? <laughs> well, uh, you have fun Googling. Anyway, 
So this spending obviously raised red flags to the police. So obviously the the family was very well to do already, but now it's like, did they kill the parents for the money? And some family members said that this actually wasn't suspicious behavior. Like they were used to spending money like this, but police were like, this is a little more than you should be spending. Yeah, especially if you're grieving. Yeah, you're not you're not just going on parties and stuff. Like I don't think Apparently one of the brothers went and bought multiple brand new Rolexes like the next day. Oh, that's not suspicious at all. Ooh. And then later the other brother bought a Rolex because he wanted one. But it's like, why would one buy multiple and not give one to his brother? I mean, if you can drop money like that, it's like if I would buy an extra pack of gum for somebody. Exactly. I went to the dollar store and got you this. Rolexes are not cheap. No, they are not. Police now were just like, mm, you're on our radar. So they contacted a friend of the brothers, uh, Craig Signorelli, and he had a lunch scheduled with Eric. So they had him wear a wire and obviously it was very casually brought up and things like that but eric denied being involved or knowing anything about his parents murder so even though police suspected it they still had no evidence eric did tell somebody his long-term therapist jerome oziel apparently he started seeing jerome once they moved to california Uh, he was you know just having trouble adjusting and they were rich so they could just pay a therapist and that would magically fix it uh, instead of, you know, acknowledging what might have been happening behind closed doors. So Eric told Jerome what had happened. And this is where... I want to say this is where things get crazy. I mean, I think they've already gotten a little crazy, but I mean, okay... He told his therapist, and his therapist broke patient-client confidentiality and told his mistress. So his mistress, uh, Judalon Smythe, I think is how you say it. Maybe it's Judalon Smith. It's S-M-Y-T-H. So I would think that's Smythe, but... I would think so, but it could just be an odd spelling. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So, um, Oziel told Smythe about the confession. And while they stayed together, she kept her mouth shut, but they broke up. And as soon as they broke up, she went to the police. Fair enough. So, what's... Does, Does the therapist go to jail as well for breaking the confidentiality? Or is that, like, not even a thing? It's just, it's just like a... I don't... I don't know how that works. I have no idea how that works. But what's... I'm not sure if that's a legal thing or if that's just like a mutual agreement. I think if your doctor breaks that confidentiality, you can sue them. Like, I don't think it's a criminal charge, but you could take them to civil court. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, So what baffles me, what I guess freaks me out a little bit, is... If he had never told his therapist, or his therapist had never told his mistress, there might not have been evidence. Yeah, it's just... 
they might still be out there. Yeah, because all they had was just, that behavior's a little suspicious, but it's nothing criminal. There's not evidence of them doing anything. We think they were involved, but we have nothing. Yeah. Well, this information was now out in the world, and Lyle was arrested on March 8th of 1990. At the time, Eric was out of the country on a trip to Israel. So one of the things that Eric did with his money, so he was the one who excelled in tennis. He hired a private tennis instructor. He was going to um, various tournaments and events and, you know, playing tennis all around the world. So he was in Israel when all this happened. But as soon as he returned to America, he turned himself in. So the first trial (laughs) was aired on court TV in 1993. Uh, During this trial, family members corroborated the abuse. They talked very openly about it. The brothers talked very openly about it. And the trial ended in two deadlocked juries. They couldn't agree on guilt or innocence. They also couldn't agree on if it was uh, murder or manslaughter. So, you know, some of them were like, yeah, the guy, they did it, but was this just cold-blooded murder or was this manslaughter? So after they had two deadlock juries, they had a second trial. And this trial, so in the first one, like I said, it was aired on TV. Everybody knew about this trial. Everybody was talking about this trial. And everybody was seeing the evidence and then, you know, how they give their opinions and all that stuff. And they're always like, well, so-and-so said this. What do you think? And then, you know, people, even though you're part of the trial, you're not supposed to watch this stuff, people still find a way. They still figure out. They still hear things. Yeah. Yeah, because you're supposed to just go with what they give you. You're not supposed to go with any outside opinions. Yeah, but that's very hard when something is a media circus. Because, you know, even just walking into the trial, if you're mobbed by reporters, then they're like, what do you think about this thing? And now you've heard about something you shouldn't have heard about. I feel like in that case, like, if you really need to do, like, the media blackout with that, like, you can allow cameras in the courtroom to document the trial, but... At that point, you just got to keep all the jury in like a hotel somewhere with no TVs and just like bring them in all blacked out SUVs into the parking garage. (laughs) A hood over their head. Uh, Well, the second trial was a complete media blackout. They weren't even allowed to have photographic cameras in the courtroom. Um, there, There were some like official ones. Because uh, there are some photos of the trial where it does have the brothers, uh, you know, in the the jumpsuits or suits and things like that. But there was no media allowed, no cameras. And um, in this trial, things were done differently. All of the testimony and information about the sexual abuse was extraordinarily limited. It was just barely brought up. And then the jury was no longer allowed the choice of manslaughter versus murder. It was purely a murder trial. That's a little odd because, like, why? I feel like yeah, that information that they limited and everything. I feel like 
this key information. Yeah, and I feel like that that feels like an overreach or an overstep by somebody to be like, okay, this was allowed in the first trial. It's not allowed in the second trial, even though it's the same information and it's the same witnesses. It, it just feels like we're gonna we're gonna hold back evidence just a little bit, so that way we can because we kind of want a conviction here. So we want we want it to go this way. So I'm gonna hold back a little bit to yeah. make you lean more that way. Yeah, especially uh, if you do listen to now, you never know who's telling the truth and who's not. But if you listen to the accounts of some of the stuff that happened, especially to Eric, like. It's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And it's like... I I feel like if you're going to run a fair trial, if you're going to have a fair trial, you need to have allow everything that is obviously allowable. Like, it, you know, if it's been yeah. authenticate, authenticated somehow. If it's related to the case... Yeah, and it's not fake, you know. Which I feel like this was, because because of that, they felt that they were in danger, and then they felt they couldn't leave, and then that's kind of why they did it. Exactly, exactly. That kind of started it, so... Yeah, well, both of them were convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Their sentences are life in prison without the possibility of parole, and these sentences are still in place. At first, they were sent to different prisons, but later were transferred to the same prison and apparently had a, a very big reunion and they were so happy to be back together. Uh, again, like I said, they were incredibly close growing up. They were incredibly close for, you know, all of their lives. But I do understand, you know, you have two people that murdered together. Do you really want to have them together? <laughs> somewhere together but yeah so they appealed in 1998 and this was denied and then they have filed petitions of habeas corpus in 2003 and 2005 both of which were denied and i had to look this up because i have heard the term habeas corpus but i had no idea what exactly that meant especially when they were filing a petition to you know there were their sentencing and all that stuff and this yeah same yeah it is a writ requiring a person under arrest be brought before a judge or into court especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention so basically they they it was it's kind of like an appeal they're like we we you should release us yeah uh but both time, both of these petitions have been denied. Um, additionally, both of the brothers have gotten married while in prison. So, that's different. Like, I know, I, I know you don't want these people being out in public. Like, I get that, but like, we did have a story before the uh, the Gary Plochet story, mm -hmm. where it's like, you should look at. Are they? Is this something that was like a, a isolated incident, or do they have possibility for doing it again? Mm -hmm. Or like, 
but since they didn't yeah present all the evidence in the last trial they kind of limited a little bit it's yeah because like a little difficult like i they they have admitted they killed their parents yes they did that it's horrible but was this really first degree murder is this really the same as somebody who just cold-blooded goes out and kills someone i, I mean it's like they i don't yeah, because either way, it's it's not right, but... Yeah, it's like, do they deserve the same sentence as somebody who just killed to kill? Uh, it, it's one of those things that it's very... It's very hard, because, like, part of me is like, they killed someone, they should be in jail. But part of me is also like... Yeah. But they went through hell. Yeah, like, it doesn't make it right what they did, but they also were only after their parents it's not like they started there and we're gonna do something else yeah it's not like they're gonna just go around killing people and turn into serial killers yeah no so earlier this year um actually in may of this year some more information has come public and this has led to the brothers requesting another hearing there is an NBC docuseries called Menendez plus Menudo. So I don't know if you're supposed to say it Menendez and Menudo or Menendez plus Menudo, but it's the plus sign. It's not an ampersand. Anyway, <laughs> that's the thing I'm going to get hang- hung up on. Uh, but mm, let's just turn this whole discussion into this. Yes. We're a grammar podcast now that because that's what we that's what the two of us should be doing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Grammar and spelling here. Let's go. Maybe add in some math. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to teach English. Yeah. So in this docuseries, uh, do you know who Menudo is? No. To start. OK, so back in the 80s. But they... before before we move on to that. OK. <laughs> Cracko teaching English class just walks into the front of the class and just like today we're going to be talking about grammar in recipe books. Today we're going to be making synonym rolls just like grammar used to make. Get out. Be gone. No. So back in the 80s, Menudo was this global sensation. It was a boy band from Puerto Rico. And um, they apparently had like a bunch of members and stuff like that. But in this new docuseries, there have been allegations revealed that Jose Menendez also sexually assaulted an underage member of Menudo who was signed to RCA Records where he was an executive. So now, with even more evidence of their father's violent, uh, abusive, and sexually deviant nature, they're trying to get a new hearing. Uh, They want to uh, either overturn or adjust their conviction they're not denying the murder they're not denying their involvement but they're being like look there's proof this is what he was this is what he did so they're they're trying to see like i i know i know that they're not serial killers but like i know people like that can be manipulative and very convincing mm-hmm. but that kind of seems to me a little bit more like Hey, we it was just a one a one thing like we know it was bad and all, but like we're not going to do anything like that again. Yeah. That's what it kind of sounds like, but and from what I've heard, they are very uh 
well-behaved inmates you know they they aren't causing trouble they're they didn't shank anybody in prison so uh i'm not i haven't seen details on what exactly they are trying to do are they just trying to get a lesser sentence and you know what maybe they'll spend 30 40 years in prison but that's better than life without parole so um so yeah that has come to light Obviously, it is something that is very fresh. So the, I believe I saw that the hearing is scheduled for this early this fall, like September or October. That'll be interesting. Um, I guess that's not that's not early fall. That is fall. So it's something early fall, mid fall, late fall. I mean, it's just everyone's falling. It's fine. Pre winter, but uh, yes. But yeah, so that is that is the story. Uh, that's that's what I have, but it's one of those ones. That was interesting. I had not heard that one. Yeah, it's one of those ones. Uh, it's like Shrek. It's it's an onion. It has layers. Don't they? Don't most of them have layers? True. Not onions or ogres, but stories like this. Yeah. I mean, all of them have layers, but. Yeah, but it's just you know, it's it's one of those things that. At first glance, it's like these two uh, entitled rich kids killed their parents, but then you dig deeper and you dig deeper and you dig deeper and you see... It's like, oh. Yeah, it makes you think. It does make you think. Yeah. And uh, for a minute, I'm, I'm going to say I'd, I briefly forgot that you mentioned that the dad worked with a, uh, a record label and was like, I don't know why for a second, like, I was just like, we're used to talking about serial killers who, you know, have a lower class upbringing. And I'm just forgetting that this is a rich guy who works with music labels and Hollywood movies and stuff. And I'm like, how did he come in contact with a Puerto Rican boy band? <laughs> And I was like, ah, oh, yes, wait, he's, he's he works with a record label. That is probably how. So Jose worked for RCA Records, as I said, but his ethics were brought into question when he sent large amounts of records to stores to make it look like sales were higher than they actually were. And uh, while at RCA, he signed bands like Menudo and the Eurythmics. I don't know if you know who they are, because you are a youngin. Can't say that I do. Sweet dreams are made of these. Who am I to disagree? Now I know who you're talking about. Uh, and then uh, he worked for a successful independent movie studio in Los Angeles called Carolco Pictures? Carolco? Carol, something like that. He he was huge in the record industry, and I'm not completely sure if he was let go from RCA because you know his ethics were brought into question, or if he just chose to move into film. And uh, I, I have a, another question uh, that again, this may be a thing I've forgotten, but just need clarification on. How old were they around the time of their trial? So they were arrested in 1990. So Lyle was born in 68, which means he was 22. And Eric was 20. 
Why, why do they look like middle-aged businessmen in their trial photos? Because <laughs> it was the 80s. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I was just sitting here thinking, like, I'm just sitting here thinking, looking at the photos. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I thought they were like younger than that, but here yeah. they look like they, well, they're like middle-aged businessmen who work on Wall wasn't... Street. Yeah, their first Especially trial was in suits. 1993, so they were 23 and 25. But yes, they they looked older than they. Yeah. So it was even more confusing as to why they weren't allowed to move out. I was just like, wait a minute. 1989 is the year they killed their parents, and that is the same year that Eric competed in the Junior National Tennis Championship. It was actually just weeks after he competed in that championship. So he, he was still a junior. Fair enough. I don't know what that means, because he would have he been 19. So I guess junior is teenager? I mean, at what point does it go from teenager to young adult? I mean, we're going to go down a rabbit hole here if I ask that question, but... I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. That's fair. I do know that neither of them was young enough to be charged as a minor because they were over 18 when they did this. Fair enough. Like, I know the legal definition. You know, if you are over 18, you are no longer a minor and you're an adult. But I don't understand tennis. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Yeah. I don't understand tennis championshipness. I mean, neither do I. Does anyone? Probably. There's probably someone who understands it. I, f I feel like the people that play it professionally probably understand it. I, yeah, I would hope. At least <laughs> yeah, I, would, I hope. would hope. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is a little, this is a little anyway. bit shorter one for me. But I, like I said, it came up in the news recently and I was, I was still young when this happened. So obviously, you know, I wasn't watching true crime I was like eight or nine when this happened. Kind of surprised. Yeah, I think I was still, I still wanted to be uh, an astronaut ballerina at the time, so. Now you want to be a, uh, a an old-timey noir detective. Actually, no, I would probably be the old-timey journalist that is harassing the old-timey detective for the, for the scoop. But instead of like a, a pipe while you're browsing news stories, looking for clues on, on the story that you're writing, you, you got like a bubble pipe. <laughs> Probably. Not going to argue that. All right. Well, that is all. We'll catch you guys next week. Hey, bye. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.